Kara. Hi, Chris. I am going to, uh, during our interview today, very professionally peel and eat clementines. I feel like I may have eaten a clementine previously on an episode, but I can't, I can't really remember. Pretty sure I drink my slim fast diet shakes pretty much every single time we have (laughs) and drink coffee. So I don't know if that is actually true. That it's unprofessional for me to peel and eat clementines. Only if I do it very noisily. However, I will note, and I have a question for our producers, that it drives me crazy listening to podcasts where I hear them like sniffling and snuffling and (laughs) smacking their lips. Yes. (laughs) Please keep those noises in, producers. (laughs) Those sounds, and and I wonder if we make them. I'm sure at times we have, but since we've been doing the muting now when you and I aren't talking, I bet that's been cut down a lot. Hmm. But we'll see. We also actually edit, which many don't. So the ums and ahs and everything, even mm-hmm. some of the really, really great professionally done podcasts I listen to, some people are, including me, are not super articulate and need editing. I agree. I am not articulate either. Also, I feel like I don't use kind of the the proper academic lexicon. I feel like I should use larger and more important words or fancier sounding words, and I don't. And I often worry that that might be a good thing for this sort of public outreach. But I also do that professionally, and I worry how that might look to peers. I listen to my son argue with his friends about the commonality of, what's the word that we use all the time? Hegemony? Uh, no. <laughs> Is it hegemony or hegemony? Now, perseverate. Perseverate is an uncommon word, but it's so common in my house that my kids think it's common. And so he's arguing about how common it is to perseverate. It's actually a clinical term that my wife uses a lot. She's psychoanalytically trained and I picked it up from her. And so the two of us use it all the time and our kids have grown up hearing about perseveration and thinking- You're gonna have to define this, you know, because I don't know that word. See? Yeah, I'm going to learn something today. It just means to dwell on something. So if you're anxious, you're perseverating about a thing. Perseverate. I imagine it's a very similar route to say persevere, right? No, persevere is to strive to get something done. Perseverate means to dwell on something. But if you actually break up the word and the parts, they're very, very similar. So I feel like there's got to be a similar root there. Possibly. Etymologists, please let us know. (laughs) linguists may also get in on this one of my favorite podcasts is the history of english i'm gonna bullshit and say they both are french loan words we should probably actually talk about the show today right are we having a show apparently i feel like that's the only reason we talk these days like the show both of our dental issues this week and my car issues i know you want to see how is it so it's a temporary crown no, for now? Big, big naked nub in my mouth. And then they put the crown over it. So I have a I have a tooth stub in my mouth. The same day you had your crown dealt with and taken off, I have, I think every single one of my teeth except incisors got ground down a bit yesterday. You know, this would have been a great intro for one of the podcasts where we interviewed uh, dental anthropologists like Leslie Alusco or Peter Unger. And, and Christian Krieger Sarah, with her bite machine, Sarah right? Sarah Lacey or Christine Krieger, what? 
Yeah, I was saying Kristen Krieger with the bite machine she was talking about yeah. last time. We've interviewed a lot of dental anthropologists, and today we're actually talking about immunoglobulins. Immunoglobulin A and athletes and non athletes, both of which are in our, you and our wheelhouse. And here we are talking about something yeah. completely unrelated. Because we had a related experience yesterday, and that's how it's going to go. So let me introduce her because she is in our waiting room now. Today on the show, we have. Carly Cheney, who is a graduate student in the Department of Anthropology at Yale. Her advisor is the amazing and wonderful Dr. Claudia Vallegia, who we also totally need to get on the show. And Carly is interested in the interaction between biology, ecology, and culture in relation to reproductive health and infant development, especially the effect of endocrine disruptor exposure on women and children's health. Her dissertation focuses on the impacts of maternal endocrine disruptor exposure, on infant hormonal profiles from a biosocial perspective in Northern Argentina. However, that is not what we are talking to her about today. Uh, we're gonna be talking to her about a project that she did as an undergrad under a friend of the pod, E.A. Quinn, yeah, okay. uh, at WashU in St. Louis. The article is a new one out in American Journal of Human Biology, of course, because that's who we are. And it's called Salivary Secretory Immunoglobulin A Variation Between Female Varsity Athletes and non athletes. Hey, Carly. Hi, how are you? Welcome to the Sausage of Science. Thank you so, so much for, you know, taking a chance to come on and, and chat with us today. And you might be the first person we have had on the show that we are discussing research you did as an undergrad. I don't think this has happened before, right, Chris? Uh... <laughs> I'm going to say that's no. We kind of start off the same with every single person. And that's getting to know a little bit about you and how you got interested in anthropology and decided to pursue a PhD. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. I feel really honored to be able to talk to you guys about my undergrad thesis. But I've always been interested in science. Parents really encourage learning in all subjects and all types. But I just loved that I could always ask my science teacher some random question about how the world works and they always have some answer they may not have been to the exact question i asked but they just like knew lots of things about how the world worked so i wanted to be one of those people oh you wanted to be savvy in the art of bullshitting that's our superpower you know <laughs> well so when i started college i was taking some you know, life science classes but i also knew about anthropology from the tv show bones which like sounds very silly now, but I thought that it was all so cool. You are one of many. How many forensic anthropology applications start with, I love bones and that is why I want to be a forensic anthropologist. <laughs> and I think we've said it on the pod before, but it's worth re-saying. Thank God for Bones and Indiana Jones. Despite the misinformation they put out there, I mean, they're our biggest advertisements for anthropology. And somebody out there, please do a new show about anthropologists because we're done with Bones. Yeah, now when I'm like teaching and I mention Bones, sometimes students are like, oh, like, what is that? Now I feel old now. But... Kids these days, I tell you. <laughs> but yeah, so I took this introduction to biological anthropology and... Anthropology was even cooler than I thought. So I started poking around, taking some paleoanthropology classes, and I realized that anthropology was this really good way to become that kind of person who understood how the world worked. I think I really realized this when I started taking human biology classes, first of which I took with E.A. Quinn. I think it was our human growth and development class. And I was really hooked because human biology has this really great perspective of 
being able to understand right this dynamic nature of our biology, taking into account you know the physical world and like the, our social context and how that influences our biology. And I thought that was really really cool. and so I kept taking more of these classes. And EA was actually the first one to suggest that I look into grad school. And as a first generation college student, I was like, oh, what's that? Like you can do that. And so she kind of helped guide me through that process and suggested I apply to work with Claudia, who I'm now in my fourth year at the PhD program at Yale, working with Claudia, who has been a wonderful, wonderful advisor. So I want to interrupt a little bit for name dropping because WashU is my old stomping grounds because I got my PhD there. So I'm very curious, who was your intro to BioAnth instructor? Cricket Sands. Cricket Sands. And then I imagine paleo you took with Eric? Yep. Eric was kind of my adopted advisor when Herman Ponser moved to another university. And so Eric signed me on when I finished out my dissertation. So I have much love for those folks. So you got a short report out in AJHB with EA called Salivary Secretory Immunoglobulin A Variation Between Female Varsity Athletes and Non-Athletes. And as we noted, this is the result of undergrad research. So that's super cool. So tell us a little bit about this project, how you decided to do this particular project and why you wanted to focus on athletes. Yeah, well, I had been doing research in EA's lab, or at least helping run Eliza assays for a bit. And so then in my junior year, I learned that to receive Latin honors, you had to do a thesis, which meant that I could make people let me do a research project on my own, which I was really excited about. I was also taking an immunology class at that time. So everything about the immune system was really shiny and new. And I was also an athlete on the cross-country team at WashU. And anecdotally, I had noticed that during the season, people seem not to get sick very often, but afterward, everyone would get sick. And so I thought that this project would be a really cool way to kind of combine the things that I was thinking a lot about. Very cool. And so I didn't realize that you were on the cross-country team. So that kind of answers a little bit of the question of like, why you chose the athletes you chose. You had an automatic in with some of them. That's really cool. The idea that during the season, athletes are super strong, not getting sick. And then the moment the season is done, everyone comes down with something. And I feel like that's really similar to students during finals. Like they push and they push hard and they get through. And then the moment finals are done, Everyone comes down with some nastiness. And I mean, that has happened to me on numerous occasions. And I'm sure we can all relate to it. But maybe you, you could break down that relationship a little bit more of what that exact relationship is between immune function and we can say heavy physical activity or even heavy mental burden or just call it high levels of stress, whatever that stress may be. Yeah, speaking specifically to physical activity, exercise immunology is really its own huge field. I don't claim to be an expert in it. But there are some interesting things that have come out about interesting relationships between duration and intensity of physical activity and stressors generally and immune function. And so on the kind of benefit side, we see enhanced immunosurveillance with moderate exercise that's not too long. So let's vary person to person, but generally people say less than 60 minutes. And with that, you see increased recirculation of T and B cells, immunoglobulins, cytokines, all things like that. And this is kind of transient, but if you're regularly doing exercise on average, you kind of see this enhanced immunosurveillance. With people who are, again, regularly active, even though inflammation is kind of increased during activity, you see decreased resting levels of 
inflammatory markers. But on the other side, if this is kind of too intense, too stressful, we start to see some immune dysfunction. So if this activity is really long, like marathon length, or if the events are particularly stressful or intense, like competition, we can see a transient decrease in these same kinds of things. TMB cell function, natural killer cell function, things like that. And this can last hours to even days. And this also happens with people that are overtrained. And this may play into the J-curve effect on acute respiratory illness. And so what this looks like is we could say that sedentary people have this quote-unquote normal risk of respiratory illness. And then people that engage in regular moderate activity have a decreased risk. But for those that have really intense, really vigorous, prolonged physical activity, their odds of respiratory illness shoots up. And so I became really interested in SIGA as one of these frontline defenders against pathogens and how that would be an interesting route to look at this relationship between physical activity and immune function and respiratory illness. Kara and I are both really interested in athletics and I use SIGA in my own research. So one, I love the way that you explain in the introduction why you chose that. But I have essentially like one 17 part question. The question is following on what you just said, which is given all of these immunofactors that you could look at, one, why choose immunoglobulin A? Two, you describe it in the title and in the paper as salivary secretory, which confuses me. So I'd like to know how in the future I can choose one or both of those words because I apparently don't know what the hell I'm talking about when I write about it. Three... So just a little bit of the sausaginess, like we want to know some of the geeky details. You refer to a J curve. I'm curious what that means. And then in the paper, you refer to an inverse U curve. I'd love it if you'd unpack a little bit of those inside baseball type of things. Yeah. So I chose IgA. As I just mentioned, it's this frontline defender, right? So it's in mucosal tissue, like your nasal passages, um, your saliva, right? And so it seems like it would be a really great potential mechanism to connect this reduced or increased risk of getting respiratory illness to changes in the immune function related to physical activity. And it's easy, right? Yeah. It's really easy to collect. Secretory salivary. Mm -hmm. I use both, and maybe that is redundant, but as secretory IgA could refer to at any point, you know, whether that's in the gastrointestinal system or elsewhere. So it is the secretory IgA. Okay, so it's like circulating, but then we also know it comes out in saliva. So Mm -hmm. you're making that distinction. Okay, that's totally fair. And I'm not critiquing you. I'm literally asking for my information. And then J and U, what do these things mean? Well, yeah, so we could say U, we could say J, it kind of depends on who you talk to. But the inverse U, right, would be similar to what I described before, but with sedentary people having some risk, and then moderate activity, having a decreased risk of developing illness. And then with that vigorous activity, your risk goes back up. It probably is more accurate to describe it as a J curve, which looks more kind of like a check mark on a graph, right? Mm. With really vigorous activity, really stressful experiences that that risk is actually quite high. And so the J-curve emphasizes that that risk may be greater than for a sedentary person. Now that we've gone through some of the nuts and bolts that we're eating at Chris's brain, which he can't stand, by the way. So I'm glad you cleared that up. Otherwise, his day would have been ruined. You looked at 
runners and swimmers. And so maybe walk us through a little bit of what this study involved and we get why you included runners because you were a runner and probably still are, but how did swimmers get involved in this? And then why only endurance style athletes? Yeah, so the literature shows that for respiratory illness and physical activity, you're at greater risk of developing this respiratory illness if you're a female and you're an endurance athlete. So I decided to look at female athletes who are engaging in endurance events, which of course led me right to the cross-country team. But that wasn't enough of a sample size. And so I started to think about other options, maybe track athletes, but everyone who does endurance events was mostly on the cross-country team. And I looked to the swim team because I swam growing up and in high school. And I knew that even people that specialized in short distance events still have a lot of endurance to get through a two hour practice. So I decided to include them. There were also other benefits as well in that they were in season at the same time as cross country. They practiced at the same time. So it made data collection and the study design pretty easy. So I just went for a jog this morning with one of my sons for the first time in nine months. And I'm feeling- Did you pull a hamstring? Close. (laughs) You don't know this, Carly, but I feel like once a month, Chris texts me because he did something to one of his hamstring muscles. True story. Sidebar. I have some personal insight into why you would have chosen this model. And I applaud you guys for doing this because I also use kinesiology- exercise science work with IGA as the basis for how we model it in anthropology. So it's great to see other anthropologists looking at this. And I have another geeky question in terms of how then you chose to model it. So you're an R person. I am not. I do not have any insights into what these numbers mean. So help me. And we don't want to bore people with too much statistical stuff, but a little bit of this is like how the sausage is made, right? So you say you analyze the data with an NLME package using linear mixed models to test for predictors. And it sounds like the software tells you which model is the best. And you ended up with a sort of best fit model that included everything. And you're going to tell us about your results in a second, but I would have argued a different approach. So I'm curious as to what you think about this predictive method and approach and sort of what the value of that is. Yeah. So I don't know. I wouldn't argue that maybe it's the only way to do it, right? And there are a lot of problems with stepwise regression, which is why we used AIC, which helps balance the trade-off between including more things in the model, getting greater explanatory power, but maybe kind of over-explaining the data, overfitting it. And so we had a couple different measures, psychosocial stress. So we went ahead and used that AIC to see if we could create a model that was maybe simpler than just throwing everything in. But the selection criteria actually found that that full model was the best, throwing it all in. Yeah, I mean, so to clarify for listeners, basically what we're saying and what I'm asking is you collect a a lot of data. Mm -hmm. Typically, we then play around. And so the world is moving in a different direction where we're registering our hypotheses and our predictors ahead of time, right? So you really did a good scientific approach here, right? Everything's included. You didn't waste your participants' time by collecting unnecessary data. I, on the other hand, still do old school collect the kitchen sink and then play with it till it theoretically makes sense to me. And some of the data that we've collected fall away because they don't seem to have a role. It's a sort of 
half exploratory, half hypothesis prediction type of approach. I like what you're doing here. I plot it. And I just wanted to be clear that in terms of your results, the way we strategize it up front is meaningful. I also wonder how much of that, Carly, is just the, you know, part of the artifact of it being an undergrad honors thesis and that you have limited funds, if any, and limited supplies and time along with all of your classes. And so that it really does make you hyper-focus on a smaller number of things to get through that study. Yeah, I agree with that. I do want to reiterate that I spend many, many, many hours thinking about this very question in modeling. Mm. So hence it's my- It's a tough question. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing that you have to have like tied down when you apply for grants because they're going to want to see what your predicted models are. Anyway, let's get to the big picture of what you found with this study. So you had hypothesized that heavy levels of physical activity that the athletes in your study would have a greater decline in the secretory IGA than non-athletes, but that's not what you found. Tell us what you found and why you think it is what it is. Yeah, I thought that during that two-week period during the study, the swimmers and the runners are really approaching conference meets and intense, intense competitions. And so I thought they would have this decrease as they trained harder. But both athletes and non-athletes had this big increase between the collection times and were pretty similar. And I don't have a great explanation based on the data for this, but speculating, I mean, this suggests that something happened to both the non-athletes and the athletes during this time period. Was it a time period like exams? Was there anything academically going on mm -hmm. to confound it? Yeah, so that is my interpretation of what actually happened, was that this also coincided with midterms. And I included measures of psychosocial stress, but in retrospect, knowing what I know now about research design and other options out there, I think they may not have been the right surveys to include for this project. And so I think it would be really cool to repeat it, but actually better account for midterm stress or avoid somehow the confounding variable of midterms, maybe winter sports or something like that. From personal experience, do in similar models, skeptical of all the self-reports of psychosocial stress, because it's hard to really standardize them. The first time I used IGA, reviewer number three made me go back and analyze cortisol to look at objective measure of stress, because supposedly cortisol suppresses IGA. The jury's still out, in my opinion, which is why this paper is so necessary. Any thoughts on that? Well, in one of the reviews for this paper, I was also asked about cortisol and if we had measured that. But unfortunately, we didn't have the resources to do that as well. So that wasn't something that I could address. I also kind of take issue with that framing of cortisol in that I think it's a bit oversimplistic to say if we want an objective measure of stress, we need to look at cortisol. And cortisol has a lot of functions in the body. And we need to be careful of that in our interpretation of it, you know? High five, um, virtual. <laughs> yeah. And so, again, it might have been interesting to also include, but you can do what you can do. Right. So as much as Chris and I love any study that includes athletes, and I, of course, get like uber excited when I see female athletes being studied because they are so largely absent from exercise physiology and biomechanics studies. So I always get delighted when I see that and include it as an example in my class. Athletes are not the focus of your dissertation work, the PhD that you are currently doing. And so maybe you can tell us what it is you are doing right now and where you're at within, you said you're in your fourth year, but kind of let the, the listeners know what that actually means for your work at this point. So I was supposed to be collecting dissertation data this summer, but the pandemic. 
So I'm still applying to more and more grants while I'm waiting and figuring out exactly how this project may change. But I want to look at exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals and how that exposure influences maternal endocrine profiles and infant endocrine profiles. And so I was planning on doing this at Claudia's field site in Formosa, Argentina, working with the Colm. But due to the constraints of the pandemic, we may be developing a version that takes place in the United States. We'll kind of see what happens. And you're also one of the student reps for HBA, and you've been hosting virtual happy hours. You want to advertise that for all of our listeners? Yeah, I think this podcast will air after the December ones have finished. But in the new year, we'll have probably a couple happy hours and not as many since it'll be closer to HBAs. But all the students listening should definitely attend. We've had some great conversations so far about brainstorming research, about grant writing tips, about venting how COVID has affected our research, and just general hangout sessions that have been really, really fun. I also wanted to shout out to promote students going to the student reception at HBAs. Mech and I are currently beginning to organize that, and it'll look a little different virtually, but it'll still hopefully be just as fun and just as useful. And I also wanted to mention that Taye Winful and Kaylee Megan are organizing some really great programming for the new community-based networking program. And they've done such a great job so far, and I'm really excited to see what they're planning for HBAs. Awesome. Yeah, it's going to be really exciting to see what HBAs and AAPAs look like and how we try to get the level of networking, which we know can't be the same as when you're in person. An interesting model is going to be for the AAAS in February, a couple of months right before uh, our meeting. So I'm excited to see what you all have in store. And I'm always happy to get emails from you folks because you are very active. I feel like we haven't had HBA groups this active from students in previous years. And I feel like the pandemic might be what's pushing that innovation. I really agree with that. Mecca and I sat down kind of when the pandemic was starting to think about how we could be creative in engaging students, especially with what happened with the 2020 HBAs and APAs slash BAs. That vote will happen one of these days. <laughs> Don't know when, but one of these days. <laughs> so our, our last question is technically, um, how do you manage work-life integration, which is a roundabout way of asking, what do you also do in your life besides anthropology? What do you do for fun, Carly? I love to dabble in hobbies. So I have a lot. <laughs> I still run. I don't really run in road races or have high mileage anymore, but I still run a lot. And I've been trying to get into cycling too, so I could do triathlons, but I'm really bad at it. So. We'll see how that goes. I also love to crochet, read fantasy or science fiction novels. What are your favorite science fiction novels? <laughs> I dig in. A hard question. I don't really know, but I was recently, not science fiction, but fantasy. I was recently talking to someone about The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss that I would recommend. I am still deep in the Expanse book series. I am on book seven of soon to be nine. Nine does not come out until 2021 and nine is the last. Once you get so many books into a series, they truly become like your friends and family, which might be saying something about my social structure in the pandemic times. <laughs> but anyway, sorry, go on. So science fiction, fantasy, crocheting, triathlons, anything else? I started like all the quarantine hobbies too, like sourdough starter, puzzles. My partner's been really into baking. So I guess a hobby now is eating all the baked goods that he makes. Nothing wrong with a little baking. We talk food. 
you are on Twitter, have an email account, and probably several other ways that folks can get hold of you to learn about the HBA happy hour, to learn about other student events, and to learn about your research. What's the best way people can find you? Email, Twitter, those are both good. What's your handle? It's just Carly Cheney. So at C-A-R-L-Y-E, Carly, Cheney, C-H-A-N-E-Y. Carly, thank you so, so much for being on the show today. We really enjoyed having a, a chance to chat with you and learn about your past work, your current and hopefully future work, pandemic willing, and about your really wonderful involvement with the HBA. 